Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts of the show. We've got a special treat for you today. We have Chris Hilliard. He is a serial entrepreneur from Nebraska who grew up in the cable business, but he's bought and sold all kind of businesses, and we'll get into some of that later. But Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, Chris, we always try to start with just kind of how you grew up. What was your family like? I know there was some uh, business stuff going on that you've told me about. Share with the folks what it was like growing up. Yeah, I'm third generation in Nebraska. My grandfather came, oh, in the 20s. He started an AM radio station before there was even an FBC. And he discovered which part of the government ruled that because one day they showed up on his doorstep because he was interfering with an AM radio station in New York. So, oops. But got that cleaned up. And then he had four boys and they all went off between farming and the military. And then my father went to work for Purina and then came back to help with the family radio business. And my dad was a, my dad still is a serial salesperson. I mean, he's the guy that he could truly sell ice cubes to Eskimos and, and make a profit at it. And he's always been so much better at a whole marketing and sales side than I'll ever be. I hold him in high regard. I stand on his shoulders, but on the marketing side. But yeah, that's where I came. So I grew up in a business world. I grew up in a radio station, their lead news host was blind. And so as a young boy, I'd leave junk all over the floor and run around and this poor guy would trip over me, but really cool. I learned what Braille was and how it worked at a very early age with this guy. But anyway, I worked for the family business. My father went on to add to and mirror on top of the radio business. He got into the cable business in the seventies. And so he used the radio to kind of promote that and it did exceptionally well. And during the summers, I would work as an installer doing, you know, running cable down between the telephone lines. And that was my job. I think my first paycheck, I think my hourly wage was, I want to say it was $3 and 15 cents an hour, as much overtime as you want it. Yeah. And that's what kept me out of trouble. So. Yeah. So uh, I'm picturing you crawling around under uh, all kinds of desks and office furniture or whatever. I, or I, and I guess at homes, were you doing it in homes and businesses? Oh, yeah. We were doing it. If they called and they wanted it, we provided it. We didn't care where they were. And this was back in the era. I mean, when we think, when I think of cable today, I think of just a few providers, right? But it was really a regional business back then, wasn't it? It was the wide open west. Yeah. Then I remember my one of the greatest memories with my father was he would walk into my room at 5 a.m. And he goes, you want to go with me today? And I, you know, instantaneously I'm awake and I'd grab my pillow throw on my clothes. And he had a 914 Porsche that was signal orange. And this thing, I just thought this thing was the best thing in the world. I don't think it had a hundred horsepower, but we'd hop in that and we'd run down Interstate 80 and we'd literally stop in towns and dad would ask for a cable franchise every single town. And we'd go meet with people that were on the board. And then at night we'd go to their meetings and, and he just, he was, I mean, he was doing he deals with the city. Doing deals yeah, with the city? Yeah. So we were getting right right away agreement with the cities. And wow. so he was brilliant about it. And I still use his technique today. He would go in and ask for a franchise from a city. And they'd say, okay, we'll put you on the agenda. Well, then he would show up in a town 
at 11 in the morning and he'd figure out who was on the board and where they worked and he would go visit every single one of them. So he'd wow. quickly figure out who was in favor and who wasn't. And then he'd figure out who his champion was so that when we got to the meeting, it was our time. He'd just say, you know, hey, I've chatted with all of you already. I don't want to waste your time, but we'd like to bring this new technology to your town. Uh, do I have somebody in favor of that motion? And of course, he'd already have somebody lined up to say yes. He was brilliant. He preloaded the gun. He was ready. And I uh, learned a lot from that. that. Somebody taught me once in a, in a board meeting that you should never know, you should never not know the outcome of a vote before the vote is taken. Correct. I wish I had learned that a little earlier than I learned it. It would have saved me a lot of trouble. I wish your dad had taught me that lesson a long time ago. But this is so interesting, okay, because you learn this business like, I mean, it's just part of how you grew up, right? And so you continued that. So how did that kind of play out? You went off to school. Tell us a little maybe about that transition and into your earlier career. So yeah, it, by the time I was a, well, I was about a junior in high school and I had been working for my uncle. My uncle was a part of the business as well. Now, the key to know about my uncle is he was a Thunderbird. He was the chief maintenance officer. He wasn't a pilot. Well, he he ended up being a pilot later in life, but as a young boy, I got to go sit in the T-38 and meet the crew. I had no idea how good I had it at that point, but when he came back to work with my dad, being the chief maintenance officer for the Thunderbirds brought with it an intensity that you can't imagine. Okay, so hold on. I, Put a pin in that for a second. I know what the Thunderbirds are because I got friends that are pilots, but we may have some people who are not. You got to just give 30 seconds on who the Thunderbirds are. So the Thunderbirds are, are the, the top 1% of the Air Force. They fly the, you know, the demonstration aircraft, F-16s. It's like the Blue Angels of the Navy. Exactly. For the Air Force. So they're perfect. They're perfect. The okay. So you yeah. can only imagine with the best pilots, you know, they also had the best maintenance people, I would assume, right? They did. They yeah. did. And so I started working with this guy, and he's in charge of the uh, construction crew, and of course, Dad is building all these cable systems, and this guy's in charge of it, and everything is going to be perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Perfect. With a checklist. And, I'm sure there's a checklist involved. Oh, there's a checklist involved. <laughs> and the checklist starts with item one, 15 minutes before sunrise, you're on the job site. You know? Right. And, and he would have never quit. Yeah. Uncle Mike is what we called him, but he, uh, he would literally stop. Thank the Lord. He would stop at 845 at night because- the restaurant at the motel we're staying at, the Shady Breast Inn was one of them, you know, the classic right. one, closed at nine o'clock. So if we were going to eat, we had to be there at 8.45. That's the only, that was his only, uh, yeah, quitting point. Those, yeah. Those were the metrics. Now, lunch was also a wonderful thing because what you quickly decided is lunch was your first break of the day. Right. And I mean, never, ever catch yourself standing flat-footed around this guy. He would put a shovel in your backside without yeah. even thinking about it, you know. But come lunch, we'd all sit down, and this guy was a full-blown vacuum. He hit the on switch, and that lunch just disappeared. It's like, oh, crap. What happened to an hour lunch? No, we're at exactly 12 minutes, and he's down the burger, the mashed potatoes, et cetera. And the only saving grace was once in a while, thank you, Lord, he would order a piece of pie. Right. And we'd get another 10 minutes, because he would take his time eating the pie. But anyway... Enough about the No, but that's but, fun. But what a combination of your dad is, I'm sort of picturing the swashbuckling uh, marketing guy doing the deals. And that's such a great partnership because I can only imagine your dad making so many promises and then Uncle Mike having to come execute, right? 
Oh yeah. No, no. I, I was literally hauling a truck down I-25 with my uncle one day and we get pulled over for speeding. Yeah. And it's somewhere between Fort Collins and Cheyenne, Wyoming. And the guy goes, you know how fast you're going? He goes, my uncle said, I have no idea, but I need to get there. The guy goes, well, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. And my uncle looked him straight in the face and said, well, you might as well write too, because I'm going out of here as fast as I came in. <laughs> that was my uncle. You so, might as well write too. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, anyway, so now do you go off to school? We go off to school at some point here, right? We do. Well, there's one stop before school. Okay. And that okay. was, I, I'd gotten done with this stuff. So my dad was wrecking out old systems. So basically, I took it upon myself to go to four small towns in Nebraska that didn't have cable yet. They weren't big enough really for my dad to mess with. And I called and I did exactly as I was trained. I called, you know, the clerk of the city, got on the schedule, went and met with all the council members, and I got four franchises, unbeknownst to my father. Wow. At which point I hired two of his key guys to help me build it on the weekends. And I promptly, I'm not going to call it stealing, but I might have borrowed a lot of the gear out of his back. Of course you did. Build these. Yeah. Um, and so that was junior, senior year. I start what was called Patriot Cable TV. And the cool part about it was that was back in the late eight, or mid to late 80s. Those things helped pay for my college education. So that helped me get into school. Now, I, I went off to Colorado College, which is in Colorado Springs, private liberal arts school. Great school for uh, how it taught. It taught one class at a time. For three and a half weeks, you took calculus. For three and a half weeks, you took biology, et cetera, et cetera. And so from a memorization standpoint, it was perfect for me. I loved the format. Now, you couldn't ask for a more liberal environment. I'll just yeah. leave it there for a you know, Midwestern conservative kid, but it went well. I worked as an analyst for an investment banking firm called Daniels and Associates between my junior and senior year there. That helped me write my thesis. To graduate with honors, you had to you had to write a thesis. And so I did. And that was my first business plan. And funny enough, I executed on it. And uh, two years, year and a half, two years after I got out of college, we sold that business. Was it an extension of Patriot Cable or was it a different business? No, it was a different business. It was wireless cable TV. And it had operations in South Dakota and North Dakota and Green Bay. And I sold it to a company out of Colorado Springs. It's a public company. And I just made out like a banshee. And, you know, here I am, 23 years old, first multi-million dollar deal, sell it. And I, here's the catch. I didn't know what I didn't know. I knew how to operate a business. And I knew how to grow a business. I didn't know how to sell a business well. But I took stock, lettered stock. For those that don't know what lettered stock is, it's this wonderful public currency that you can't sell. Yeah. You're stuck for two years. Yeah. And guess what happened during those two years? Yep. The stock they, bankrupted, they bankrupted the whole business. I went from having lots of money to zero money in one day. Wow. Now, the cool part about that is I arrived home and walked in the door and explained to my wife what had happened in the kitchen. And she goes, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> you know, God bless her. She has always been there and nothing's ever rattled her. Yeah. But I just looked at her and said, you know what, honey, I just, I'm not that hungry tonight. So off I went <laughs> to lick my wounds. And, but, uh, you know, that was the first business, you know, actually it's the second business. And then I went on to sell a few more business. I got smarter about taking some dollars off the side yeah, yeah. of the house and doing all that. But I was, I hate to admit this, but I was dumb enough to do another stock deal. 
Surely it can happen twice. Right. Oh, yeah. Lightning struck twice in the exact same spot, and I got whacked again. Wow. Now, I think one of the lessons I've learned from this, though, and I mean, honestly, I think, you know, if you look back, you know, God has a way of taking you through life, yes. teaching you lessons along the way. And it's not particularly in focus when you're in the middle of it. Right. I can look back now and just see that, you know, my uncle taught me a hard work ethic. He told me to get up when you get knocked down. And I got knocked down several times and just got back up and did it again, you know? And just having that that sense of urgency and sense of just continuing on, you know? Oh, well, was it Win? I think it was Winston Churchill who said, if you find yourself in hell, keep going. Keep going, exactly. No, that totally makes sense given that history. And But obviously, so you were successful at building them, not so great at selling them early days, but at some point... You do something that, that gives you some liquidity and you do some generous things with it. Where, maybe, where does this sort of, where did the generosity kind of gene kick in? Where did you learn that piece of the puzzle? Well, when was gene splicing introduced? Was that like two years ago, I think? Was it spliced yeah. in? Yeah, it was spliced in. It did okay. not exist. Let's okay. just be honest with the listeners here. I, if you wanted to know what generosity was in the Hilliard household, it was my wife. It was Karen. She, uh amazingly generous lady. She would do anything for anybody, cook anything for anybody. Yeah, she was amazing. It probably wasn't until, oh, I guess it was probably 2012, honestly. I was about 42 at the time when I I finally came to a burnout point where our relationship, my relationship with my wife, my kids, again, those lessons and time that God sets for you to learn from. And, uh, the wheels came off the bus. The it was a disaster. It was the second lightning strike. Yeah, and here I am, forty-two. I was raised in the Catholic and Episcopal faith, so I knew I knew God, I knew Jesus, but I knew it in a different way. And at that moment in time, we kind of went the ultra conservative to the other side of the road, and we hopped right in the middle of a Pentecostal church. And I I started a new season, a new chapter with God on a different level. And not better or worse, I still miss the Catholic Church for a lot of what it has and, and the majesty in which they treat God. But the Pentecostal side taught me more of a personal relationship, but also got me into the Word, right? It wasn't just show up on Sunday, it was deep reading. And the blessing of that was it got my kids into the Bible. My children read more in the Bible in the first year at that church than I did until I was 42. Wow. And that just says a lot. It got us all back on track back together as a family. And that's probably when the gene got spliced in, if you will. Was that a sort of re-engagement with the church and a new church in reaction to that sort of financial setback? I mean, do you think of that as the catalyst or what was the catalyst? No, the, yeah, the catalyst was the perfect storm. It was a, a business explosion. Yeah. It was a default on a senior note that, that we had to fix. It was a terrible time in my marriage with Karen. And I was completely disconnected from my children because I was gone all the time working. So you add up that mess and it was like, okay, I woke up and said, okay, we've got to do something different. And so we did. We did. Wow. And uh, it was a real blessing to wake up. Yeah. An amazing story of redemption, really. I mean, and, and I think that's, you know, for all the positive stories, you know, Unfortunately, I think we all learn the most in the setbacks, you know, 
But because of that sort of motor that you have, you know, hopefully everybody listening can use those setbacks as a setup for a comeback, as they as they say. So let's talk about the comeback a little bit. You get into the word. This starts kind of healing the family. It sounds like. Where does this take you now? Takes me on a, on a much deeper walk. I now am taking time specifically for the family. I'm not traveling. The pastor uh, that is mentoring me convinces me to start a men's group. And so suddenly I'll, I'm waking up at 5.30 in the morning to get to my office and I've, you know, put together a plan for everybody to show up at six. You know, I'm serving, you know, let me rephrase that. I'm not serving. My beautiful wife has prepared 10 pounds of bacon for all my, <laughs> my guy business buddies to come do a Bible study or a right now media course. Yeah. And so that happened, you know, probably within a year or so after, you know, we kind of got on the new track. And so that really helped me develop and use my business and my position in business as a means to bring men together, talk about the Lord and really get that organized. And and that's where, again, the generosity started kicking in. I was blessed when we had the banking issue blow up in our face. The CFO I had at the time walked in and said, here's your default notice, and here's my resignation. Oh, good luck with that, yeah. he said. Yeah, and it wasn't like a month resignation. It's like, I'm out of here in 10 days. Wow. Now, the interesting part about that is, is I'm, I just got sucker punched, so I can solve the default. That's, you know, because we had just grown too fast and we already had a sale in progress, wipe out all the debt. So it, the solution was evident. What I needed was CFO to run the financials and get right. the paperwork out. So I called my, my CPA and I said, here's my dilemma. And he goes, I'll call you back tomorrow. I've got an idea. Mike is his name. Mike calls me back the next day. Here's the young lady's name you need to call. She's a young analyst on the team. Give her a call. And so I give her a call and we talk and kind of interview and she accepts the job. Well, little did I know, this young lady was my, my CPA's partner's right-hand gal. Uh -oh. So, <laughs> yeah, he sold his partner out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's just say his partner and I still, uh, we're nice to each other, but other sides of the street, other sides of the yeah. street wave from a distance. Got it. We'll cross over. But uh, that young lady, her name's Amber Renicky. She's still our CFO. She has gone on this walk. She and my wife are best buds, and she's just been amazing. She's the daughter, come to find out, of uh, the minister that mentored my Christian walk when we changed churches. So I had yeah. no idea any of this was connected, but it was all connected, right? Well, again, and that shows, I think that illustrates your point you made earlier about how you can only see the grand plan in the rear view mirror, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure the minute you get that, boy, that's a dramatic story of receiving that resignation and that, that notice that sounds like a terrible moment, but in retrospect, sounds like it was actually kind of a huge blessing. It was one of the greatest gifts. It was one of the greatest gifts we got given. He was a happy person, a joyous person. And we didn't have one of those in our organization. Mm -hmm. And she was also, I had never worked with a balance sheet. We were all cash flow. I was yeah. cash in, cash out. And she goes, you know what? You might want to balance. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. What the heck? I'll try that. And so she was just amazing at the details and, and still is. We're, I think we're in 17 years now in the trip. And so she joined me before the whole blow up. And so now she, 
There's many explosions in the business world. If you haven't experienced one, you will. If you're young enough, you might have avoided them to this point. But she helped get us through that, and she's still with us today. She is part of our our new track that I'm guessing we'll get into here in a minute. But it's kind of taking us into kingdom investing, and she put together a donor advice fund as well as us, and we're investing together, and we're using her talent. She, you know. There's people in this world that you meet that are good at things and you want to be partners, friends, co-investors with them because they're good at one thing that you'll never be good at and you're good at things and he's one of those people. It's I said, if you ever get bored or try to leave, you're going to wake up on an island without your passport until you get your, your thoughts correct here and then I'll let you come back. Well, she sounds like your financial Uncle Mike. Yes. As Uncle yeah. Mike was to your father. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. found your Uncle Mike. She's got a little bit more pleasant disposition than he did, but yeah. Well, you know, yes. a good partner, shall we say, Absolutely. Uh, on the business side. All right. And okay. So now I know that you had some more success in business and did sort of this illiquid gift. I'd love for you to describe maybe a little bit of the building of that business and what that exit looked like, because I think it's very unique what you did in that transaction. So, yes. So as we were transitioning, and again, I'm not sure why God has blessed me the way he had. We sold many a business in between here and there, but we did very well. And But I, I started in about 2017 to have a true holy discontent with the business. I kept buying them and selling them, buying them and selling them, and, and I was good at it, and, but it became rather monotonous and the joy had left it. You know, my wife would say, you know, you haven't been joyful for a few years here. In fact, you're kind of getting to be a grumpy old man. And so... You know, sitting down with my mentors and thinking through it and, and just having good people listen to the story and advice, I, I had read through Halftime, which is a book by Bob Buford, and I probably read through it the first time in 2007, and I read through it probably three or four times before I took it seriously and finally entered their cohort program in 2019. Now, the cool part about Bob Buford is I knew the guy because he was in my business. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, I met him several times. I never was friends necessarily with him, but I, I'd been introduced to him. I'd been at conventions with him. And so, in fact, his son, Ross, worked at the same investment banking firm that I did. And so, just interesting connections. But halftime really kind of helped me start thinking through, what am I going to do with this holy discontent? Because at some point, I can't stay in the business I'm in because I'm just not happy with it and it's not healthy. And so walking through their kind of premise of going from success to significance was super critical. That started in 17. In 19, when I joined their cohort, I had, I had agreed to sell three of the states we were in. And that's when I made my first DAF investment. So this is when generosity was starting to ramp up in my life. We had used the business to make many donations and things like that. But the, the first real push was when we made that that first effort to get out of the business. But I wasn't all in. I still had a foot on the dock and I wasn't going to sell it all, but I started. And the one thing I differ from my dad, my dad never wanted to pay taxes, you know, so he never wanted to sell a business. It just was against his grain. I didn't have a problem paying taxes, but I wanted to minimize it as much as possible. And so I was getting advice from JP Morgan. I was getting advice from Merrill Lynch and, and all these different people. And, and one of the things that came up was this DAF. And a DAF is, is just an amazing thing. For those people who don't know what that is, a donor-advised fund is a mechanism by which you can set money aside kind of pre-tax 
the best explanation I have of it is I'm trying to maximize kingdom dollars and minimize Caesar's dollars. I always believed, you know, what Jesus thought, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you know what? I like nice paved roads and I like the police force and I like the fire department. And so I believe in paying taxes. But, you know, if there's a way that I can pay taxes and get those benefits, but also get more money into to God's kingdom, that's what I was going to do. And so I started exploring that, exploring that. And so we, with this one transaction, we did dollars post-sale into a donor advised fund which there was some tax benefits for that. But it also helped the the little bit inside of me that says, you know what, I know how to invest money better than my local pastor. Now, that's going to sound awful. It really is. And, and I'm not trying to be a control freak, but on the other hand, when you sell a big business and you have a church that's a few hundred people, to tie that much is they're not going to know what to do with it. And it might actually harm them more than it helps them. And so Again, listening to smart and spiritually minded mentors around me, I started this process that you were talking about. So, okay, so we we make a sale. We put a. You said it was post. So you didn't give a portion before the sale, right? You gave it the at. first time. The first time we did, we messed with a DAF. It was post sale. Post sale. So, so I got. I get smarter over. Okay. Time. Okay. So maybe we while. get to that. So the first time you hear this donor advise fund thing. You do the sale, get the proceeds, and then put a portion, basically the cash proceeds, into the thing. Now, later, you get a little smarter, and just for the audience, you can give a portion of your ownership before you sell it and avoid some of that capital gain, so that's even better. So maybe walk us through that that one. Yes. So the first one, I, I was exploring it and starting to understand it. By the time I finally said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm out. I'm, I'm stopping doing business. It's time. I truly did feel between 2019 and 2021 a calling to burn the ships. Okay. It's time. Let's move. And so we proceeded in putting the rest of the telecom business up for sale. And I decided at that point, hey, that DAP is really cool, but you know what? It's even better if you do it before the sale. And that's what you've been alluding to. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to put up 23% of the company, and I'm going to put that and just give it away. I know that I'm going down this path. I'm going to enter into a sale in the next year or so. I'm going to give away a part of this company, and that's just going to be God's kingdom money. Now, my logic behind that, again, being transparent with everybody, was I did not tithe very well. Now, Karen did her best with what I gave her, but I just kept reinvesting money, reinvesting money, and reinvesting money. And at the end of the day, I said, well, I'm going to give 10% anyway. So why don't I give God 10% of the company? We don't pay the taxes on it. He gets more money. Well, that makes perfect sense. And then the rest of it was, well, there's a lot of catch up we need to do here. So here you go. So that's how we got to the end of 23. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we got to today. Uh, My friends at NCF National Christian Foundation, Jeff Carver and Jay Bennett helped walk me through that process. They were super patient with both Amber and I and helping us understand how to do it and walking through the legalities of it so that you know, again, we want we wanted it to be correct and defensible, et cetera, et cetera. And so we end up with a donor advice fund with some serious assets in it. And so that's that's where I find myself today. I'm in the middle of transitioning to doing some stuff that's that's significant. We're looking at kingdom investments and let me start over. 
that brings me to today. And then the question was, what do I do with this? And the parable of the talents comes to mind. And as we were talking earlier, it's the math behind it, right? If you look at that parable and two turns into four and five turns into 10, then you got to have a return on your investment to make that work. You can't just, you know, you can give it away to a church or a nonprofit and it'll get used for expenses and whatnot. And they'll be out knocking on the door next year for their next budget line item. And it just, it went against my grain. Not that we don't give grants. We do. And we do, happy to say, tied regularly to the church <laughs> as my wife handles that side of it. But I said, with all this donor advice fund money, if we're going to make a difference in the kingdom and we're going to live up to the towns, we have to get a better return on our investments. And so I entered into this going, well, who in the heck in the kingdom world is going to give me any return on my investment? They all just want me to grant them, you know, write them a check and go away. And just to, just to pause there, it just hit me because I've, I've heard your story a couple of times and it's something new just hit me, which was what, what, what I think is obvious probably to everybody listening for the first time, but it just hit me that you, know, you went from just full speed, really since you're a kid, frankly, at business, success and failure, as most entrepreneurs do, but you know, you're doing pretty well here. And God's kind of calling you to get out of that active management of the business and really become a full-time investor. Now, most people, when they sell their company, when they think of being a full-time investor, it's still for-profit. Well, maybe now they're not the operator, but maybe they'll invest in various ventures, you know, and, and uh, back entrepreneurs and, you know, a bit of their own sort of family venture fund, if you will, plus some liquid stuff. But I think what's so interesting about yours, if I may restate it, just to kind of paint the picture a little bit, is that, yes, of course, you'll do whatever you want to do with the stuff that you kept, if you will, as you're still a steward of the things that are not in the donor advised fund, still have to deal with that. But within the donor advised fund, even, right? Is that where you're doing most of these kingdom investments, where you're find, trying to find investments that actually build the kingdom inside the donor advised fund? Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So we, that's very start, interesting. It's almost like your new business. Well, it is a, it is a full-time business to find this just because it's a very unique thing. Yes. We found a couple of different names that actually I was super blessed to find a couple key names. One is Talenton, which is a group run by David Sims and John. Who introduced us, who introduced us. Shout out to David. Yep. And these guys are doing senior debt. Now, being an investment banker who basically got a lot of people senior loans, this was just right down my alley. I get this. And they run an evergreen fund, which is different, right? So you can get out or, or get in whenever you want within a certain time frame that isn't like private equity. Private equity tied up for 12, 13 years. Yeah. These guys are much shorter and they're looking at it from a senior debt side and a return that's around 8%. You know, if I can go out and make 8% on my senior debt and put on job, make a spiritual difference, mentor people, and then put my business skills to work, this, this, it's a home run. It's easy. You know? And there's a lot of guys that you make money and now you want to invest it in the stock market and you, know, you want a better return as you sit around and count your chips. This, it was just a game changer for me. Because like you said, I came to a real sudden stop. And let me be very clear, there was about a year in between the sudden stop and where I'm at now that was very tumultuous. There was a lot of, I was blessed that my daughter got married during that time because that kept me focused 
and I had a very positive thing in my life right then and there. But sudden stops aren't with a few difficulties. And so don't go in the, into those sudden stops without a few friends that will help keep you on the road. You're going to bounce around a lot, but to have some good mentors and spiritual people around you to keep you on the road is, is one. And I did, thankfully. But it, let me tell you, I knew where the right and left side of the road was by the end of the journey. So, yeah, it's a good warning. So, so talk about, a little about how do you evaluate sort of this kingdom investment? So I think, you know, basically these investments are doing things that you view as, as positive for society and, and build the kingdom of God, that kind of thing. But maybe describe what, what that looks like kind of inside where that money goes and what does it do? Well, I mean, the, the secular world would call it ESG, right? Which, as we discussed earlier, is really a stamp to make certain government contracts happy and environmental groups happy and whatnot. But, you know, to go into the, the kingdom world, when we use similar metrics in the sense that, you know, and again, I'll give Talenton credit because they kind of gave us the buffer or, excuse me, Talenton gave us the metrics that we're starting to use as we look at investments. We want to make sure that a company has cash flow. Otherwise, it's truly a startup. And not that those are bad, but they're not as predictable. We also want to make sure that the company is not only led by Christians, but also is not afraid to talk about it. One of the first guys I met when I moved churches, his name was John Hansen, and he came up behind me. And we knew each other because our kids went to the same school. And he knew that I, w- I had been raised Catholic. And, and here I am in a Pentecostal church. And he I snuck in the back. Nobody even knew I was there. I was going to sneak in. I was in the back road. Nobody was going to know, and I was going to check this place out, right? All of a sudden, John's bare claw of a hand hits me on the shoulder, and he goes, don't worry, I got your back, but there's going to get a little crazy around here with some hand raising and whatnot, but I got your back. And anyway, I, I don't even know where I go with that. But no, that's fantastic. But, okay. but having, yeah, having people who... So the, the theory behind that story was John Hansen taught me that when he said, I'm going to pray for you, I would say, oh, that's great. Thank you. And then he'd start praying. I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing this right now. And it was right. a great lesson for me because I had come from a spiritual walk that, you know, I'll pray for you, buddy. Yep, thanks, you know, yeah. to one that was right now. Right. And, and that's the kind of spiritual aspect we want to see in businesses that we invest in is people who truly live it out right now. Because if you mean that you're going to pray for somebody, then just do it. We're right here. We're right now. Let's get it done. And it matched up with my business philosophy of just let's get it done. That the, the great uncle Mike taught me is like, if it needs to be done, then get it done right now. We're not waiting for lunch. We're not waiting for pie. Get it done. And so I love shifting that all that experience kind of into these investments that just have some more meaning and impact. I mean, it makes it really makes perfect sense. And and I think one of the cool things that Bob Buford always said is that, you know, when he wrote Halftime, he talked about selling kind of the family, similar to yours, like the family was always in the cable business. He sort of sells the family business and then, you know, moves from, as he says, success to significance. Well, and I heard later, I didn't hear him say this directly, but from, from people that knew him well, that he said one of his regrets that is that he thought everybody had to sell their business to do something meaningful. It's not always true. You needed to do that. I mean, of course, you were doing some other things before that. But you felt led to sell the businesses to now be an investor in this thing. That, that's so interesting. Other people might sell it and, and go be a missionary, whatever, or just write checks to ministry or whatever. Other people, sort of like what we're doing, you know, uh, in, in Alan Barnard and, and Jeff my Coast, you know, we're giving away the companies while we're alive, but we're, we're called to operate them. So be it. 
there's just a lot of flavors to this. And so I really like your story where, and thank you for being so transparent about your struggles, because I think that just makes it more real because there's, I'm sure people running on the treadmill, listen to this, who are kind of in the pit right now, you know, depending on the business you're in, the economy's been kind of rough for a few years. And, uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way out for them, but what does that look like for them? I think just engaging uh, with God and listening and he'll tell you what to do. So if we think about somebody, as we sort of wrap it up, Chris, you know, I always think of us as when we record these podcasts is like, like we were talking about earlier, just sit at lunch, having kind of a fun conversation about life and things that matter. And, and sometimes afterwards we always think, gosh, we wish some of our friends had heard it. So we just view the listeners as our friends that are listening to us. And maybe there's somebody a little behind us. Maybe it's that person I just described uh, on the treadmill who's like, man, I'm not where Chris is. I'm back in the pit, you know, trying to get out of it. You know, what would, what's just some practical advice, sort of business owner to business owner that you might give that person? I would say that I wish I would have had a better spiritual mentor at an earlier age. But if I were to look back and give myself a little advice at an earlier time, I would have said, Chris, here's your bar of provision. Set your bar of provision. Here's what you need to live off of and whatnot. And then you know, once we surpass that, you need to start tithing. And that would have been good for me. It would have been a healthier way to find generosity and start walking into that. The problem comes with me as a young man was I was always trying to grow faster, bigger, faster, bigger, and leverage everything. And so it was never, you can't satiate the appetite of a growing business. You can plug all the money back in it you want. You can leverage it up and it'll never satiate it and you'll never get to that bar. So the sooner you set that, the better. And one of your co-hosts, his story of, of setting that bar, even as they set up the company, Alan, it, that truly, when I heard his story, it meant the world to me. And that, that's probably what I would tell uh, a younger me. What I would tell somebody who's still in the game that's more my age is you have no idea. You've been operating businesses for 10, 12, 20 years, 40 years, whatever it is. You have a talent and a pool of wisdom that you have no idea what you have. And it, the story for me came real. I went with the halftime group, Dale Dawson, Marsha Gordon, those folks over to Rwanda this last October. And I had always wondered, you know, what do I do? You know, I'm going to go make these investments. I'm going to review these companies. I'm going to look at their financials and, and, and look through all this stuff. But I was like, that's fine and dandy. I make these investments, but I'm going to be bored as can be with this. What do I do with everything else? I've got this whole wealth of knowledge, but you know, who the heck really wants to hear from an old guy, right? What I discovered in Rwanda was there are so many young business people over there that would love to have a conversation with you. It would blow your mind. I could be busy 24 7, 365 days a year, running around helping these small businesses in one of the fastest growing economies in the world, in Africa, helping them out. And here's the thing, I enjoy a good business conversation. And the even better part about it is, is you go into these businesses and you might not know this business versus that business, but a real smart guy told me once, you know, the nouns may be different, but the verbs are the same. Meaning the process of running a business and doing profit is the same. Now you might call things different things, but in general, you know, you can go look at a business and you can tell if it's healthy pretty darn quick. Yeah, it doesn't matter if uh, it's a micro business in the pizza business in Rwanda or the cable business in the Midwest. I mean, there's some business principles that apply to both, right? Yeah. And so 
what we discovered over there is not only are investments important because it's changing lives over there, until you see it. And I hate to be this guy, but you can listen in to the stories of Auschwitz, but until you're in that shower stall, you don't experience it. You can hear about Africa until you go over there and meet these wonderful people and see the difference you can make. And I mean, you can make a big difference to people who really want your help, who see you as valuable and want to work hard and want to make a difference. I would say to anybody in my age or in my group, if you haven't looked around the world, you know what? You can also find this in your backyard too. Please hear that. It's not just to go to Africa. You can find it anywhere, but over there, you can make such a big difference in lives. It just, it's amazing. It really did open my eyes to the opportunities for a businessman who's, who's been successful. But if you want to be significant, go change the lives of 5,000 coffee farmers. And you can do that. You can well, do that tomorrow. I think what many, many, many wise statements in what you just said, but, you know, finding a spiritual mentor, understanding God has a unique plan for you, setting a financial finish line so you have margin to do these things, and then deploying the resource in a way God uniquely calls you to do, and not just the money, but your talent. And most people listening to this, it is the Generous Business Owner podcast, yep. are running businesses, and they've probably got more talent than they realize, you know, just by the experience they have. And don't just give your money, go ahead and give your talent. There are places where it would be welcome. Absolutely. The greatest resource the church doesn't have, they've got the greatest bench, they've got the greatest bench strength of all time in these 40 to 60 year old people who run businesses and they're sitting on the bench because they're so focused on the young people, which is important. It's the next generation. I get that. But anybody who runs a business, you need to tap into that and put it to good use. And I wish they would, but it's upon us, right? It's our responsibility to take what God's given us, and uh, that's where I'm headed with it. Well said. Well, Chris, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this week's episode of the Generous Business Owner Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.